standard issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here. Yes, I am feeling lots better. Thank you for asking, those of you who did. This is the last of our series of International Women's Day interviews for 2020. Although, to be fair, every day is International Women's Day as standard issue. So if you've not listened to us before, we obviously do this kind of stuff all the time. Every week we talk to brilliant women. So press subscribe to make sure that you don't miss any of it. So number seven, I went to speak to the Canadian Pakistani author and photographer Samra Habib about her excellent book, We Have Always Been Here, a queer Muslim memoir. And we talked about all sorts of really interesting stuff about the women that you meet in your life, really briefly, but that can have a really profound effect on you, about Samra's experiences of growing up in Pakistan and about how women around her were treated by society and about what it's like for her both to be an LGBT person within Muslim communities, but also what it's like being a Muslim within LGBT communities. She was absolutely great. So that's what's coming up now. And after you've listened to this, if you haven't listened to any of our other series on International Women's Day this year, you have missed out on some absolutely cracking stuff. Writer and actor Amelia Bormore talked to us about writing crime in a responsible fashion, as well as all of the other great stuff that she's done in her career. Sophie Walker talks about her book about activism. Jen did a lovely interview with Sue Pollard about her one-woman show, Harpy. Mick spoke to Andrew Heaton. I think we could all find something in there to identify with. Helen Lewis came in to talk about her book, Difficult Women. I was too poorly to go to that. I know, it's annoying, but I did a lovely time listening to it, and you can too. Mick is currently, as I actually say this, talking to Vivian Hayes who is the CEO of the Women's Resource Centre. I can't tell you what that's about. Like I say, I haven't actually heard it yet, but I have absolutely no doubt that it will be brilliant. So that's all of those things. Normal service is resumed in the terms of what podcasts we're releasing on Wednesday. So until then, thank you. Hi, I am here with Samra Habib. Hello, Samra. Hello. Who is the author of a brilliant new book, We Have Always Been Here, a queer Muslim memoir. Hi, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me here. I read this back in October because originally you were going to come over here then, but you obviously wanted to save it so you could be here in the rain and the coronavirus (laughs) chaos. Perfect time. Absolutely. You just flown in today. Yeah, a couple hours ago. I still am very jet lag right now. (laughs) What's the situation in Canada with uh, disease control? Uh, it's I don't know what it's like in London, but you know, it's just pretty. It's very. parent that it's taking over people's lives mm. like my girlfriend a couple of days ago made us buy a month's worth of canned food just in case really and i said okay i'm just doing it for you um but yeah people are really you know paranoid i couldn't get toilet paper yesterday what i know i was panicked yes there is definitely panic yeah right well let's crack on with, uh, <laughs> with your book uh, which i have to say i won't be i haven't not the first person to say it, surely, but it is absolutely beautifully written. Thank you. It is economical when it needs to be. It's descriptive when it needs to be. I, I think it works really well. Thank you. And I think the economy drives home some points really well, and we will certainly get onto that. Yeah. But I, I want to talk about how it starts, because it starts with you seeing a woman who is different mm-hmm. when you're a child. Mm-hmm. And it clearly having 
quite a profound effect on you Mm -hmm. because what you're seeing is difference. Mm -hmm. And I I found that really interesting because I think any woman who herself is different, and I'm using different in a positive way here, someone who has thrown off societal expectations of how they should be. Yeah. I think we all have that one person, not necessarily someone we knew, but just someone who sort of flashed through our lives like that mm-hmm. and made us think, oh, you know, it can be it can be slightly different. Is that is that something that really stuck with you from the moment that you, you first encountered this, this, woman? Sort of, this woman? Yeah, yeah. and I'm, for sure. And I think she's sort of this archetype also, like she's kind of, she represents also just the, the kind of woman I... Uh, I'm really drawn to, and I don't mean that like in a romantic way, yeah. just like, you know, who's like, how does she have all this sort of courage to take up space in a way and to like be dare to be different? And those are just the kind of women in life that I'm generally drawn to because I think sometimes it, it might not seem like that uh, after you read the book, but you know, you know, I can be quiet and sometimes it sort of can take me a bit of time to come out of my shell. So I think. Whenever I see a woman like that, I kind of want to, like, just observe her and take cues from her and just sort of, like, see, like, how can I have, like, the same kind of courage yeah. that she does. Yeah. I mean, it, in particular, in the environment in which you grew up, because oh, what we're sure. talking about is mm-hmm. is you being a child in, in Lahore. Mm-hmm. The way you write about the women that surrounded you when you were growing up, your, your, so your family, mm-hmm. essentially... You use an excellent expression, which is you say that these women didn't have the blueprint for claiming their lives. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect way of describing it. Mm-hmm. Did, did you, at what age do you think you were when you first noticed that? Uh, probably when I was confronting my mother about my arranged marriage. I don't know if is that a spoiler alert, <laughs> but I mean, that it's, it happens pretty early on. You know, when I sort of start to see that... You know, she is not protecting me, not because she doesn't love me, but because she she actually doesn't know any better. And yeah. to her, that is what protection looks like, because that is what, you know, was demonstrated to her when she was a kid by her, her mother, that this is love and this is protection. Um, and I think, you know, part of it was also sort of, you know, like being a teen in Canada and being surrounded by like these feminist teachers in school where I sort of started to learn that, oh, like all like some of the things, some of the attitudes that were like really normalized in my home were actually not okay, you know, like domestic violence being one of them. So that is when I sort of started thinking, I have to be the parent that I wanted. You know, I have to protect myself because like my mother is not really equipped to protect me in the way I need to. And it's going to have dangerous consequences if I just sort of like trust her. Yeah. What I find interesting about what you've said is that there clearly is a cultural element to it. Mm -hmm. But equally, as someone who grew up, Mm -hmm. you know, in quite a small town in this country, there were elements of the way my mum brought me up that I would say were exactly the same. Mm-hmm. I, I had a, a moment, uh, I, I mean, I was a lot older than you were, when I sort of flash encountered a woman who made me think, you know, things could be different. Mm-hmm. When I was I was 24, I was living in Sydney in a house with uh, another girl who, who got a letter from her mother, because that's how old I am. She got a letter from her mother to tell her that her godmother had died. And her mum had written her such a lovely letter to to break this news to her that she actually read it out to us. 
And in it, she was talking about her godmother, who had never married and had never had children, but that who had travelled and had gone back to university later in life and had educated herself and, and was really loved and really popular and really respected. And I suddenly thought, oh, that's a thing. Yeah, That's a thing, because up until that point, I had been led to believe that women who didn't marry and had ch- children yeah. had really lonely, empty lives. Yeah. And suddenly, suddenly I was presented with the truth of it, which is, it's perfectly possible. That stuff my mum said to me isn't yeah. true. I'm not going to die lonely. Yeah, I might yeah. die on my own, but yeah. it doesn't mean that I'm going to be lonely. I have another example uh, that sort of is connected to that too. I really, really wanted to be a pilot when I was a kid. Oh, wow. Like, I just... I just really wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to fly. I'm not really sure why. And uh, my parents told me that that was not an option for women. Um, And one day, I was probably around eight at this time, I was opening up this magazine that my parents used to subscribe to, and in it was a profile of a female pilot. And I was just livid. (laughs) I was just livid. I said, you know, you lied to me. Like, how could you be so dishonest? You know, you told me this wasn't a possibility for me, but clearly it's an option. They just, they were speechless. But, you know, that was also one of those moments when, you know, I did see like sort of like a glimpse of like what other options there could be for women, right? Yeah. Yeah. So my question, all of that (laughs) leads up to this question. Did you write this book because you have a sense of responsibility to pass that message on? that it's okay not to be the person that society wants you to be? Yeah, I think, you know, it's probably a two-part. Part of it is to sort of like, because I think, you know, just having conversations with so many, you know, immigrant kids, they sort of have this like expectation of like, you know, what they're supposed to be. I wanted to write it sort of to pass that message on. But I think it was also for myself. I just wanted to sort of, you know, have a record of like what happened because my sisters like always ask me this question and they say, like, how did you get here? Like, how did you get here? You were arranged to marry you when you were a kid, you know, like, how did you get here? So I think part of me was to sort of like the exercise of writing was sort of actually thinking through why did I get here? Yeah. Going back to you growing up in, in Lahore, you were there till you were 10. Yeah. So the way that you talk about the women around you and that surround you and the, or the, the place women hold in society, I found it really interesting because you didn't tell me anything that I didn't already know. Mm-hmm. But yet all of it laid out together. It It's really startling mm-hmm. that, you know, for example, your mother had her name changed mm-hmm. because... Your dad just decided. You just to, didn't like it, which is incredible. It's like how do how do you not you know how did you accept that? Like I can't even like I I can't even understand why someone would just sort of go along with it. But that is what my mother did. Because when we talk now, sort of in the twenty first century, about yeah. identity, I mean that the very core of it is what you call yourself. Exactly. I found that that sort of, that attitude sort of as well, it's spilled into, you talk about quite an, an early assault on you when you were a child, which again, the the reaction to it is extraordinary. Your parents saw protecting your reputation as protecting you rather mm-hmm. than t- them being two separate things yeah, as such. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, you know, when I, 
look back, you know, like I would have loved it if my mother had approached it differently. Like, are you okay? Like, how can I comfort you? You know, and that was really not what happened. Have you read that book, uh, Women Who Run With the Wolves? No. Have you heard about it? Yes. Okay. And, 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 I'm sure everyone and, tells and, about it. Going, oh, God, I <laughs> There's a notion I'm probably just like butchering it probably, but it's just like um, like an injury. It's like a, like an emotional injury that happens. It's like you can kind of like go back to an incident, uh, the root of an incident, the root of like why you feel the way they do. And that is probably one of the times that I had this like emotional injury uh, when my mother was maybe not able to protect me in the way I needed to at the moment. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it probably like set the foundation for like, you know, what I thought the expectations in that culture were and what the you know, what was right and what was wrong and what was important, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. So you went to Canada when you were 10. Yeah. Partly because as an Ahmadi, am I Ahmadi, saying that correctly? Yeah. yeah. Um, as part of that, as an Ahmadi Muslim, you were under threat. Pathetically, mm-hmm. it was shocking because for some reason I expected like Anna Green Grable, yeah. Green Gables for some reason. I don't know why, but it was just like very concrete. Um, like it, it, it didn't seem very pretty to me where we were. And also like, you know, I instantly became the parent. Yeah, that, that is interesting because that is something to do with all that, that was exacerbated by the fact that you grasped the language quicker. Yeah. Which I think happens a lot with children in yeah. immigrant families, doesn't it? Yeah. And yeah. it's like, you know, when you're that age, you don't necessarily, you, you're just a kid. You're like trying to process everything that's happening around the same time. You don't necessarily want to like, you know, protect your parents by like not telling them if someone has said something racist or like taking them to the, taking your mother to the gynecologist. Yeah. You're like, I'm just a kid. I should know all this stuff. But yeah, it just very much felt like I instantly became a parent and I feel like I never really got to be a kid. And sometimes I feel like I'm living my life backwards right now. Okay, that's interesting. (laughs) Because I was an adult when I was a kid. So, like, sometimes I do things like, you know, I I feel like I'm like, I try to be like wild and free now because I didn't really have the kind of childhood that I wanted. You talk about something else that is really, really, I found really upsetting, which is about the sort of separation. Obviously, when people... uh, I'm trying to say this in a non-spoilery fashion, but, <laughs> you know, the idea, because we can get onto your, your marriage um, or your first marriage yeah. um, later, but the, ha- what happened to you previously before is that you'd seen people that you'd been around and then they just went. They just, they they, they left. Women just left and were married and oh, le- yeah. and left. And it's so heartbreaking that, that women are kind of forced together even more it, within the community that you grew up in. And then one is just plucked out of they it. They just and disappear. Then... Yeah, they're just like vivacious. They have like these lives. They're like super interesting. And they just leave. They just disappear. Yeah. What sort of effect do you think that, that has on on those women or those communities? You know, I kind of imagine it's very similar to the effect that it had on my mother right um that is kind of what I observed and can speak to it just sort of I don't know to me my mom's experience seemed like you know she claims that she loves it she loves being a mother but it just sort of seemed like she just became this kind of sacrificial lamb right so she just gave up her dreams and her hopes and 
I, uh, yeah, I just feel like she sort of like internalized this belief that she wasn't really allowed to have dreams of her own, passions of her own. And I wonder if that is the experience of other women. I'm not sure. You were 16 when you married, although you knew about it mm-hmm. quite a lot younger than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you 13? Yeah. Nikah. So it's a, it's a marriage in Islam. The way you've written it is, obviously, you look at the idea, you know, that, that a woman or a girl, literally, is married at, at 16. But because you've written it and you also write about all the other stuff that's going on in your life at the same time, it really hammers home that point. You are 16. Yes. You are, you a know. <laughs> a, yeah, absolutely. And you're, you know, interested in classroom politics and mm-hmm. and. And the thing, school dancers and all of the stuff that sixteen-year-old girls are thinking about, but at yeah. the same time, you're actually sort of married, essentially, yeah. to someone who's quite quite a lot older than you. Yeah, ten yeah. years older. I mean, I was embarrassed, and I felt like you know I was trying so hard to like you know fit in, and that was like I felt like that was like another thing that like made me different from everyone yeah. else, like that I was also married. I don't know. I just wonder, like sometimes, if that experience of having double lives kind of impacts me today. I wonder if, you know, I do compartmentalize different parts of my life yeah. and sort of think, oh, people don't need to know about this. I don't know. Maybe that's work I need to do in therapy. I'm not sure. <laughs> but I'm sure. But yeah, like even then, like I knew it just felt gross. Yeah. You know, that like I I know it's not like an elegant word, but that is just how it felt. It just felt gross. It felt like those were not the kinds of conversations I should have been having as a kid. I should be thinking about university. I should be thinking about, you know, like what I want to do after I finish high school. Like marriage and having kids was not something I should have been thinking about that at that, that, that time. It just – it didn't feel right. Like I – even though, you know, it was something that the women in my family had gone through, it just did not feel right. Hey listeners, we very much like you listening, but we would bloody love you to become viewers. Our live gigs are things of joy, so you should totally come to one. Our next show is in Birmingham on Sunday the 29th of March at the very civilised time of 5pm. And Hannah and I will be chatting with the boss, Sarah Millican, the very talented actor and playwright Helen Monks, excellent comedian and actor Janice Connolly, aka Mrs Barbara Nice, and A.N. Other T.B.A. We're also in the process of finalising gig bookings in Brighton, Manchester, Milton Keynes, London and Edinburgh. So keep an eye on our website for details of those bad boys. That website? www.standardissuepodcast.com I would hate anyone to get the impression that this is a a, a really earnest piece of work because actually you write with a really light touch. Thank you. And although there were bits that made me go, "Ah," there were also bits that made me go a little bit like, you know, almost that's so ridiculous that they seemed comical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, When you're talking about the problem pages and you're like essentially 95% of the advice is just pray for forgiveness. Um, But there's a bit in this that you actually rang a youth helpline to talk about Mm. your concerns and you were told, have you tried talking to your parents? Which like, actually made me laugh. I was like, they're the problem. Why don't you understand? And I just like hung up. I was like, you know what? Forget it. Now, Canada now is seen as a beacon of pro- progressiveness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think if you rang a youth hotline now, you would get the same advice? Do you think things have improved? Yeah, I'm sure. You know, they. I, I'm sure they're like culturally 
appropriate supports that are available right now that maybe weren't really available back then. Um, I, I'm a little bit exposed to the kind of social services um, that are available in Canada. I kind of work in the sector. Um, and so I kind of am very much aware of how much things have changed. But yeah, back then, I don't know if that was an option. I don't know. The person just seemed like they didn't really know how to help me. And it just, it was like one of the many adults who at that time felt like didn't know how to help me. Yeah, or failed you, I yeah. suppose is another way, yeah. of, another way of saying it. Um, now, obviously, you, you got out of that that relationship and uh, although I, I got back into another relationship, which again was something else that really made me smile was that you you told your mum that you'd elope with someone because you, that, you thought that would make mm-hmm. her happier, mm-hmm. uh, which is... Something that I, I think if I rang my mum at that age and told her I'd elope with someone, that she would have absolutely gone mad. The idea that I, you know, married them, that would be the worst case scenario. Yeah, Whereas yeah. for your mum, it was, it was. It was like, okay, you know, my daughter has run away from home, but she's married, so it's fine. So, in, I mean, so in many ways, you were kind of making, making it up as, as you went along, which of course is perfectly normal for an 18 yeah. year old girl to be doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But feels really bold when, when you read it in this. Yeah, I just, um, I felt, I don't know why, like, you know, one of the things that I wish I could do if I could talk to my 18-year-old self is tell her she has options. Yeah. But those are the options that I'm aware of now, being like an almost 40-year-old. But back then, it kind of seemed like that was the only option I had. Yeah. Um, And I still, you know, carried with me a bit of religious skills, and I thought, like, that was just something I also had to do because I was living with a guy. Yeah. Yeah. Now, obviously, you've, you've progressed, uh, and like I say, I don't want to give a, a lot away about this, but um, your book then moves on to you becoming part of the LGBT community. Um, and I think what's interesting about this is quite often with society, we're, we're really interested in the idea of how do you how do you get to be LGBT in the Muslim community? which is there's a lot of questions around that. But there is also the other question of how do you get to be a Muslim in the LGBT community? Mm. Which one of those do you think has been has been sort of more, I don't want to say harder, obviously, mm. but has been more central to your story? That's a really great question. I've never been asked that. Hooray! That's, that's a great question. Um, I would say the experience, so uh, the way I would sort of, differentiate them is that in my experience and obviously i can only speak to my specific experience the experience of being a muslim in the lgbt community has been a bit isolating for me but the experience of being uh an lgbt person within the muslim community has been more accepting because you know part of my journey uh you know includes finding this unity mosque in toronto that was a queer mosque uh and that's where like i found people like myself so like Part of my coming back to Islam was about going to this other mosque that was more accepting. Um, And it's sort of, to me, that kind of signals like a sense of community. So I feel like that is kind of more, that is what that experience is like for me. But being a Muslim um, in LGBT, uh, sorry, LGBTQ spaces hasn't always felt welcoming. Like things are definitely changing. But, uh, you know, I remember years ago, uh, I write about it in the book I, when I launched a photo project um, because I was, you know, myself trying to figure out what 
other queer Muslims' relationship with Islam is. Uh, I remember like talking to my queer friends in Toronto, and they didn't really see a need for it. They're, they said, they said, well, you know, like things are so great here for queer people. Like, why do we need like a photo project? And I think it was part of that was ignorance because there are really specific issues attached to being a person who identifies as queer Muslim. You know, there's like a lot of baggage attached to that. So it's sort of like to me that meant like not really having a clear sense of how that impact, how that experience informs your experience as a queer person, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, your brother asked you a question that you you address at the end of the book, which is, you paraphrase and I may be paraphrasing (laughs) here, which is the question of how do you feel loyalty to Islam when Mm. Islam hasn't always been kind to you? Um, Which is obviously the most enormous question, but... I'm thinking he probably wasn't the first person to ask you that. Is that a question that's asked you a lot, but possibly in a less sympathetic fashion or a less informed fashion? Yeah, I do get asked often. Um, And I think, you know, for me, it's really uh, important to make the distinction between, you know, how uh, conservative Muslims might be less welcoming to queer people and how someone's actual relationship with Allah and Islam is. And I feel where my brother was coming from, it was very much about, you know, conservative Muslims' reception uh, of, of queer Muslims. And I feel like that is unfair. Like, why do they get to define what my relationship with Islam can be, right? Like, mm-hmm. why do they get to define that? And I just feel like I don't really have a choice. It's kind of shapes, like, how I see everything in the world. It informs my decisions. It informs my choices. It, you know, that is sometimes how people see me. Like, I don't really have, like, any power over that. Um, So I just think it's unfair for me to have to strip myself of this identity that I connect to so spiritually because, you know, there's, like, a group of people who feel like I don't have a right to call myself that. I mean, I don't think it's it's specific to to Muslims. I think that religion and and homosexuality or or queerness, however you want to define it, have always rubbed badly sort of against each other that's probably not an appropriate way to say it but yeah um yeah but it does tend to get focused on I think particularly um possibly because you know Muslims do tend to get judged I feel more harshly than other religions yeah there's a lot of Islamophobia yeah I mean you know and that's something that I was really aware of uh when I launched my photo project uh for folks who don't know you know um I launched a project project called just me and Allah um, and I traveled around the world photographing queer Muslims around the world. And there was also an interview component of it where I asked them about their relationship with Islam. Um, and, you know, things, it, well, even though it wasn't a, a very long time ago, it seems like things have changed a lot. Uh, but, you know, back then there seemed to be like a really, you know, mo- it just seemed like most of the coverage that you would get of Muslims in mainstream media was like Islamophobic. It was about oppressed women. It was yeah. about, you know, terrorists. And I just wanted to sort of offer a platform for these sort of other stories that are also existed. So, yeah, you know, there's like a lot going on. And that I think, you know, I do think that things are changing a little bit. Um, you know, uh, the demand for different kind of perspective is increasing. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, that's like really recent. Can I ask you one more thing? And I don't want to give the responsibility <laughs> of you, uh, necessarily, but if if there is someone out there listening to this who is in that situation, who is a queer Muslim, 
what apart from reading your book what what sort of advice do you think you could offer have mentors in your life have people in your life who have your back you know i dedicate this book to to chosen families everywhere but you know the reason is that you know when i felt abandoned by my family i had to sort of construct my chosen family and people who sort of could provide support you know like emotional support love like dreams that i was in really sort of getting from my biological parents so i really believe in mentors so look look up to people who provide you a glimpse of the life that you might want to live and like ask them if they could take you under their wing like that is what i would say that is pretty good advice for anyone <laughs> i would say thank to be you. honest thank you very much for your time this thank has been so fascinating and we have always been here all good bookshops yes yes terrific yes thank you samra thank you so much Standard Issue for All Women.